Thanks so much. Good morning, everyone. It is so good to be back with you this morning. I've been looking forward to this since I was here last in August. Uh, and when I was here, that I preached about rest. And I've got to say, I have not been doing a very good job of practicing what I preach. Um, graduate school is not particularly known for valuing rest. But hopefully today, I can find some better ways to take my own message to heart. Um, Speaking of rest, though, I was fortunate enough to get a fall break a few weeks ago. So my wife and I decided we were going to spend a few days in Chattanooga just for a change of scenery and to explore a new part of Tennessee and do some hiking. So while we're driving down, I'm on my phone, like on Yelp and Google, and I'm looking up um, things to do in Chattanooga, and I'm just dismissing all of the kind of major tourist attractions, like Ruby Falls and the Lookout Mountain Incline, because I was worried they were all going to be too crowded. Uh, it was my break from school, and I wanted to get away from it all. I wanted a quiet, low-traffic hiking trail where I could take a meditative walk and commune with nature and process all the things I was learning in school and just have this kind of perfect spiritual experience. I imagined myself like one of those inspirational Instagram posts. I don't know how many of you are on Instagram, but you know, like my back, it's just like my back and I'm in front of like a misty grove of pine trees and I'm in like flannel and a beanie and drinking like a steaming cup of coffee from a camp mug. And there's like a Mary Oliver quote on the side, right? And there's like no other human being in sight. So that's what I'm imagining like this, like hiking experience is gonna be like. But once I realized that in all of my like search for perfection, I was ruining what was a perfectly uh, pleasant trip, I started to really reflect on what it was that I meant by get away from it all. I mean, it's a phrase that we throw around really casually when we're like preparing for a much needed vacation or daydreaming about buying an RV and just traveling around the country. But what do we mean by it all? What exactly is it we're trying to get away from? And when we get there, to this park or beach or quiet mountain, is that place not also a part of it all? And why do we specifically deserve to be in that place apart from other people? And once I started reflecting, I didn't really like what my answers implied. The idea that I was somehow kind of leaving this human realm for the natural realm, and that I had a right to be there alone, and that I could come and go as I please when it suits me, it felt individualistic, it felt consumerist, uh, colonialist even, and those are not the values that I want to inhabit when I go hiking. And I think this experience has been on my mind in particular this week, as world leaders are meeting in Glasgow for the UN Climate Change Conference. Because I think these small questions about how I was relating to the natural world around me in Chattanooga have larger implications for how we view ourselves in relation to this planet we inhabit and what responsibility we bear for its care. Because I think we have a tendency to separate ourselves from the rest of the planet, to see the natural world as some kind of just particular green patch with trees that we can enter and leave, fence off and preserve, or cut down and control. And I think this tendency leads to a lot of harm and destruction. The more obviously dangerous manifestation of this is when we view the natural world as something to be mastered, consumed, and put to human use. We extract resources without limitations. We take what we want because we can. But I also worry that our response to that kind of environmental destruction is sometimes equally as troubling and rooted in a false dichotomy between humans and the planet. Maybe some of you saw those nature is healing news stories during the pandemic lockdown. Uh, these were stories about how with humans kind of largely off the streets and lighter traffic that 
bears and foxes and other wild animals were returning to urban centers and rivers were running clearer. I don't know if anyone saw some of those like pop up on Twitter. Um, and the implication being that right, humans are the real virus. Uh, it turns out that many of those stories were fake. And while they might seem like a harmless or possibly heartwarming way to remind us that our modern way of living is damaging to the environment, they do have a bit of a sinister underside. Science journalist Sierra Garcia writes, this stance has some serious flaws, like its disregard of the disproportionate impact different people and societies have on the environment, and its questionable assumption that human society and the planet are somehow discrete and utterly separate actors. But the most disturbing facet of this argument is how it echoes strains of the environmentalist movement that have advocated for reducing non-white, non-Western populations. In fact, it was this idea that led Patrick Crucius to murder 23 people, most of them Hispanic, in an El Paso Walmart in 2019. In his manifesto, where he claimed he was trying to stop the Hispanic invasion of Texas, he wrote, if we can get rid of enough people, then our way of life can be more sustainable. This violent and oppressive ideology is known as eco-fascism, and it is rooted in the same kind of human and planet dichotomy that leads to environmental destruction in the first place. And yet, it is true that we are the only species on the planet capable of destroying life on Earth with the push of a button. So how do we hold this paradox? How do we recognize our enormous responsibility to creation without centering our own power and separateness in ways that just continue to perpetuate destruction? I think a good place for us to start is returning to Unitarian Universalism's seventh principle respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. I think this principle is such a profound statement of our faith. I know sometimes I think of it as kind of the principle for the environmentalist, the social justice committee members who are focused on solar panels and tree planning. Um, and it does have profound implications for our work for environmental justice, but I think for very deep theological reasons. We don't have the seventh principle because we care about climate change. We care about climate change because we hold to our seventh principle. Reverend Forrest Gilmore, executive director of Shalom Community Center in Bloomington, Indiana, elaborates on this principle writing. Our seventh principle, respect for the interdependent web of all existence, is a glorious statement. Yet we make a profound mistake when we limit it to merely an environmental idea. It is so much more it is our response to the great dangers of both individualism and oppression. It is our solution to the seeming conflict between the individual and the group. He continues, our seventh principle may be Unitarian Universalist way, way of coming to fully embrace something greater than ourselves. The interdependent web which could be expressed as the spirit of life, the ground of all being, the oneness of all existence, the community forming power, the process of life, the creative force, or even God, can help us develop that social understanding of ourselves that we in our culture so desperately need. It is a source of meaning to which we can dedicate our lives. Now there are a few writers and thinkers who've been helping me better understand our interconnectedness and interdependence lately. And I'd like to share some of their thinking with you today in hopes that they might help you flesh out your own understanding of our seventh principle. And I hope after the service, you'll all share with me the people and ideas who are inspiring and challenging you in this area or wisdom from your own religious and spiritual traditions. 
And one of those is feminist and eco-theologian Sally McVeigh, a former Vanderbilt professor and dean who passed away in 2019. McFaig spent a lot of time thinking about the ways that language and metaphor shape our understanding of the divine. Recognizing the limits of the many individualistic and patriarchal models offered by traditional Christianity, she offered her own model, the world as God's body. McFaig writes, the first implication of creation modeled as God's body supports and underscores a radically ecological view of the world. It is entirely opposed to the cult of individualism endorsed by modern religion, government, and economics, all of which claim that human beings are basically separate, isolated individuals who enter into relationship when they wish. For McFaig, we are all inherently in relationship by virtue of our place on this earth. There is no opt-in or opt-out option of being in relationship with one another. But she says the most important implication of this model is what it demands from us as human beings. She writes, we are basically, intrinsically, and always interrelational, interdependent beings who live in total dependence on others who compose the body, while at the same time being responsible for the well-being of one tiny part of the body, planet Earth. I think that's such a beautiful way of articulating our seventh principle. And McVeigh's model called her to the daily messy work of caring for creation, saying, nothing is too lowly, too physical, too mean a labor if it helps some creature to flourish. But it also called her to the work of exploration. She posits that perhaps religions should be more concerned with where we are, what the world is like, and where we fit into it, rather than the why questions that we usually associate with religion. She cites essayist Annie Dillard, who asserts that our original intent here on this planet is to explore the neighborhood, view the landscape, discover where it is we have been so startlingly set down. And in my opinion, some of the people doing the most fascinating exploration of our neighborhood right now are the scientists and researchers helping us understand the ways trees communicate and care for each other. Um, do, you, do you all know about this? Is this like a thing that's popped up? It's kind of made its way into um, popular culture through Richard Powers' novel, The Overstory, uh, and German scientist uh, Peter Vollenben's book, The Hidden Life of Trees. So if anyone here is actually a scientist, I'm seeing you, you can either, it's like you can either plug your ears or correct me after because I will probably butcher this. I am not a scientist. Um, but by basic layman's understanding, uh, is that Western science is now discovering something indigenous cultures have been telling us for quite some time. The forest is a complex ecosystem that communicates and cares for its various inhabitants. Through systems of fungi and roots and pheromones, trees can share water and nutrients with other trees and warn of dangers like drought or insects. Am I like You're close? All, all right, thank you. <laughs> so I don't know about you, but I find this both amazing and really humbling. It makes me take a less anthropocentric view of the world and also just marvel at all of the hidden connections that are kind of linking life together in this web of existence. Sally McVeigh, Annie Dillard, and scientists like Peter Volenbin are all helping me to see that when we look around at where it is that we've been so startlingly, startlingly set down, to use Dillard's words, we see great complexity and compassion. We are daily discovering new links and connections that bind us together, new paths of communication and methods of care. 
I mean the trees we rely on to breathe, communicate, and care for each other using complex, complex networks of mushrooms. I cannot imagine a more illustrative picture of our interdependence than that. And I think narratives that help us recognize our interdependence can be really fascinating and beautiful, but I can also find them a little intimidating, knowing how profoundly our individual actions can impact life around us in all of its forms can just be kind of paralyzing. But I don't think a theology of interdependence has to lead us to despair. In fact, I think it can lead us to a place of real deep hope. Yes, our interconnectedness means that harm done at one point of this web of existence causes harm to other points, but the ripple effect happens also when love and care are present at one point. A taller, older tree shares water and sunlight through a fungal network with a smaller tree. That smaller tree thrives, absorbing carbon dioxide from the air so we breathe easier. It provides a home for birds and insects. It provides shade for a wary hiker whose experience among these ancient trees will inspire her to fight to protect this piece of land from deforestation. We are in community, in the words of novelist Richard Powers, with a hundred thousand species of love. A theology of interdependence helps us to put into perspective our place on this planet and hold all of these paradoxes, hope and despair, humility and power, resilience and fragility. It helps us to reject false binaries and dichotomies that place us outside the natural world and keeps us grounded in hope. So what I offer you to, to you this morning is not a call to action on climate change. I am not a climate scientist or, or an environmental organizer. I am a theology student. So I come to you this morning with an invitation to live into a theology from which a compassionate and sustainable call to action can spring forth. In this fight for climate justice, we will be faced with despair and paralysis. We will be asked to change comfortable habits. We will be confronted with false choices that want us to pit human life and environmental protection against each other. And I think our best chance of overcoming these roadblocks is to remain deeply rooted in our seventh principle. We need to feel this interdependence in our bones. We need to know ourselves as creatures on this earth, and I don't mean just a reasoned intellectual kind of knowing, but a soul-deep, fully embodied kind of knowing. Now, we did go hiking when we were in Chattanooga, and there actually weren't a whole lot of people on the trail. But it turns out that that wasn't where I felt most deeply rooted in our seventh principle. Instead, it was in the middle of the city in the noisy and chaotic Tennessee Aquarium. As I stood, masked, next to curious, delighted children and wonder-filled adults, and we marveled at the close-up view of the strange and beautiful fish that swim below our feet every time we jump into the river to cool off in the summer heat. Me, my wife, the little kids, their tired parents, and all of those colorful fish. We are all neighbors on this planet we call home. We are all simultaneously resilient and fragile and our well-being is inextricably linked with the well-being of every other creature in that aquarium that day. So yes, follow what's happening in Glasgow, march and protest and call your elected officials, and also leave here and go outside and play in the dirt. Or not, it doesn't have to be playing in the dirt if that's not your thing, but do something that helps you feel rooted in our seventh principle. Something that will help you live fully into a theology of interdependence. Listen to the wind in the trees, tend a community garden, 
feed friends and strangers with food you grow, get to know the farmer you buy produce from at the farmer's market, make composting a spiritual practice that reminds you we all come from dust and to dust we shall return. Whatever you need to do to remind yourself of our deep interdependence and interconnection with each other and the weird, wondrous, beautiful planet we inhabit, go and do it. It is a matter of urgent spiritual, political, and ethical importance. But more than that, if you believe Annie Dillard and Sally McFaig, and today at least I'm inclined to, it is perhaps our whole purpose while we are here. May it be so, may we make it so. Amen and blessed be.